Today's Bible reading is from Colossians 1, verse 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of God. Well, good morning, everybody. I've got Proud here. He's uh, looking after me. Proud's uh, doing the recording. Thank you, Proud. Proud, I heard a story that uh, that you're going around telling people my name is Proud, but I'm a rough crowd. Um, proud, thanks. <laughs> Thanks so much for what you guys do. We're starting a new series this morning in the book of Colossians. We've just finished a three-week series in the Lord's Prayer, which was just wonderful for all of us to go through the Lord's Prayer again. And uh, if you missed any of those three talks, you may want to go back onto our church website and uh, and listen to them. We're starting this morning a brand new series in the book of Colossians. It's been read to you. And uh, this morning we're looking at chapter 1, verse 1 to 14. Uh, it's somewhat introductory. I'm not sure I'm going to get through this whole passage. We'll see how the time goes. Um, but let's, uh, let's pray and, um, and ask God to help us. Let's quieten our hearts and our minds as we come to sit under God and his word. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And Father, we thank you that one of the great ways that you deliver us from evil is that you've given us your word. And so we pray that your word 
and your spirit may change our lives and our hearts. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. I think it would be true to say that we've all had times when we wondered whether Christianity is real. Times when we wondered whether we are real Christians. Perhaps it's something you read, something you watched. Perhaps um, you saw in the life of someone who calls himself a Christian. And uh, you wake up in the middle of the night and you think to yourself, I wonder if I haven't been conned by Christchurch Midrand. I wonder if this whole Christianity isn't a con. And then there are other times that you wonder if you're a real Christian. You look inside yourself, all the secret stuff no one sees, all the not-so-secret stuff that people do see, and you sometimes wonder, am I a real Christian? Well, if those are some of your questions, and with that comes confusion and doubts and disillusionment, then the letter of Colossians is for you. Because it's dealing with this question, is Christianity true? Are you a real Christian? Have you heard the real gospel? So this morning we're going to do a little bit of background work. And to get the most out of this letter is first to get to know the people involved and the circumstances. Here we have a letter. Notice there chapter 1 verse 1. We read, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So what we have in front of, a, uh, front of us here is a letter. It's written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, Timothy, uh, who's his disciple, is helping him. And he's writing, Paul's writing to a church in Colossae, which is uh, in present-day Turkey on, on the west coast of Turkey, and Paul was writing this letter when he was in prison in Rome, and uh, he's writing round about 60 AD. Now, Paul didn't plant the church in Colossae; he'd never been to Colossae. But uh, notice verse seven there, where we meet uh, we meet a gentleman called Epaphras. Uh, let me read: Just as you learnt it, that's the gospel. Just as you learnt it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ. On your behalf. So Epaphras, who had been one of Paul's converts, went back home to Colossae, and when he went back home, he shared the gospel and uh, through that planted a church. However, what had happened over time is that false teachers had infiltrated the church with false teaching. And um, that false teaching had started to, started to rattle, started to unsettle the believers, the Christians in Colossae. Let me give you a quick preview of some of the false teaching uh, taught by the false teachers, which Paul is trying to address in this letter because he's concerned that his brothers and sisters in Christ are unsettled in their faith. They are rattled. They are uncertain. They're living with confusion and doubts. So notice the wrong teaching, and we pick it up chapter 2. And I'm just giving you a quick preview. We'll get to that in the next couple of weeks, God willing. Chapter 2, verse 4. He writes and says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Well, he's actually talking about false teachers in the church. Chapter 2, verse 8. Notice. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, 
according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So what is happening here is that they are false teachers inside the church. They are teachers in the church. Some of them are leaders in the church. And they are teaching these things which are not the gospel, uh, which is not Christ. And so Paul is writing to correct their false teaching, which is unsettling the Christians in Colossae. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 16. We get some idea of the content of their teaching. He speaks there, chapter 2, verse 16, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going into detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So that's the kind of false teaching, and we'll get to that in a couple of weeks, that was going around in the church of Colossae. And Epaphras is now reporting back to Paul, he's in prison in Rome, all the false teaching. He's reporting back that there are disturbances in the church at Colossae. And they're filled with all kinds of doubts and confusion. Was the gospel, uh, so the kind of questions they were asking because of the teaching of these false teachers is, was the gospel that Epaphras taught us, was it the true gospel? Was it the real gospel? Uh, perhaps we've been conned, perhaps we've missed out, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps we got it all wrong. So Paul now writes to address their confusion, their uncertainty, and he writes to reassure them. So we can learn so much from God's word. But the first thing you need to do is understand who was writing, to whom he was writing, what the context, the circumstances were, and then we can apply those same principles to ourselves because we also go through these times of uncertainty and confusion. Well, let's dig into our passage. We're going to look at three headings. Um, and let me just say, I've, I've been greatly helped. Uh, you, you see the books around me. So when those of us who preach, when we prepare, we, we read commentaries, we, we uh, try and learn as much as we can about the passage. I've been greatly helped by commentaries by Douglas Moo and by um, Dick Lucas. But I tell you what is a great, great manuscript is uh, Sean Storer. Many of you know Sean, and uh, Sean's done a great manuscript on Colossians. And uh, whenever I'm not sure of a passage or a paragraph, I think to myself, what did Sean say? And um, so, so what I'm actually saying is that when I get anything wrong, it's actually Sean's fault. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's dig into our passage. Sean, I love you. Um, all right, three headings. He thanks God that they are real Christians. Secondly, he thanks God that they have received the real gospel. And thirdly, uh, and briefly at the end, he asks God for their real growth. So those are the three main principles. Let's dig into the first one. He thanks God that they are real Christians. Let's read from chapter 1, verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your prayer in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. 
So Paul is thanking God here. He's praying. He tells them he's praying for them. And he thanks God that they are real Christians because of the real fruit in their lives. And actually what he gives us here are three marks of a Christian. The fruit of the gospel here are three marks, three fruits of the real gospel, three characteristics of the gospel. So um, you can you can take these three marks and and apply them to yourself. And uh, if 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 these marks are true of you, well, the chances are you're a Christian. If they're not true of you, chances are that you're not a Christian. So let's have a look at these three marks. Uh, he thanks God that they are real Christians. And here are three signs of a Christian. The first there, notice verse 4, is your faith in Christ. Notice there, we always thank God because we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Now, it's important to notice what Paul does not say. He doesn't thank God for your work for Christ Jesus. He doesn't thank God for your imitation of Christ Jesus. He doesn't thank God for your religious devotion of Christ Jesus. No, he thanks God for their faith in Christ Jesus. Now, of course, that is the unique distinction between Christianity and every other single religion in the world. Religion will always tell you what you must do. There's certain things you must do. So in Judaism, uh, Judaism, you have the Ten Commandments, and at the time of Jesus, that had been that had been fleshed out into six hundred and thirteen laws that you had to do, that you had to obey. In Islam, you have the five pillars. You have Shabada, which is affirming the key uh, belief that there is no god but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. Salat, you pray five times a day. Thirdly, zakat, you give charity to the poor. Psalm, you fast during the month of Ramadan. And then the hajj, which is the pilgrimage to Mecca. Those are the five pillars of Islam. In Hinduism, you have the eightfold path. In ancestor worship, you have the slaughtering of animals, the shedding of blood. Christianity says, no, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can merit your salvation. You can't earn your salvation. There's no five steps. There's no eight, eight-fold path. In fact, it's the exact opposite, says Paul. You must abandon all reliance on your works, on your efforts, on yourself. All you can do is come to the end of yourself and not trust in yourself and trust in someone else who is Christ Jesus. Faith in Christ Jesus. So the gospel, the gospel, the Christian gospel is not what we do. It's what Christ has done for us. And so we trust, we believe that he died on the cross and his death was a substitutionary death in my place, on my behalf. Let me quickly go to the whiteboard and just uh, show you. Most of you have seen these, but they are so helpful to understand uh, what faith in Christ Jesus is and what it isn't. So let's quickly go to the whiteboard. So the only reason I come to the whiteboard, because I noticed some of you were dozing off, and I really just want to get your attention back. All right, let's have a look. The difference between Christianity and religion, every religion. Religion will always tell you that there are certain things you must do. That is religion. There are the five pillars. There's the slaughtering of animals. There's the eight-way path. It's what you do to try and earn your way to heaven. Christianity says there's nothing you can do. It's all been done. 
That is the big, big difference. That is the big, big divide between Christianity and all religions. Religion says do these things, and if you do them faithfully, hopefully you will know God. Christianity says there's nothing you can do. Everything you touch is marred with your sin. No, all you can do is come to the end of yourself and trust in what Christ has done. Let me give you another example. This is, this is, this is you or me here. And uh, here, we have, here we have God. And uh, religion says, this is what religion says, there are certain steps you must take, there are certain things you must do, there are certain things you must obey to find God, to be right with God, to be reconciled with God. That is religion. It's your actions, it's your deeds, it's your works, it's your religion, it's your devotion. Christianity says the exact opposite, that God has taken the initiative. God has sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world. He sent him into this world to die on the cross and to reconcile us to himself. That is not what we do, my dear friends. We fall on our knees at the foot of the cross and we trust in Christ Jesus, faith in Christ Jesus. So I hope those 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 uh, those pictures help you to understand this great difference between religion and true Christianity. And as I've said before, uh, it's faith in Christ. So it's not so much the the amount of faith. It's the object of faith. So you'll find in some Christian books and some Christian teaching, they give the impression that uh, you need to generate enough faith. And if you have enough faith, things will happen. Well, uh, that's incorrect. It's not the amount of our faith. It's the object of our faith. The Israeli, the Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir, she was once asked if she believed in God. And she replied, the Jews believe in God and I believe in the Jews. Now, perhaps that's a politician's way of ducking a question. Not sure if her faith is in the Jews or her faith is in faith. But that's not what Paul is talking about. It's not faith in faith. No, it's faith in Christ Jesus. You are not relying on your own efforts to get right with God. No, you're trusting in Christ and the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. The second mark, quickly notice here, he thanks God that they are real Christians, and you know that you're a real Christian because of your faith in Christ. And secondly, notice there verse 4, your love that you have for all the saints. Now, look at that word, saints. We often misunderstand that word. My Aunt Louis was quite superstitious. And uh, so uh, she had a copper engraving uh, in her car on the dashboard of St. Christopher. And St. Christopher is supposed to be the saint of traveling. And uh, she, she, she always touched St. Christopher before she uh, went off in her car. And she said, St. Christopher is there to protect her. Um, I'm not sure who was there to protect the other people on the road from Auntie Louie. But that is not that is not how Paul is using this word in verse four, love for all the saints. No, he's talking he's not talking about Saint Christopher. No, he's talking about Christians. So the word saints is often used in 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 the New Testament to talk about ordinary Christians like you and me. It actually means the holy ones. 
So he's talking about believers, your love for all believers. So, so we would have Saint Saint David or Saint Bronwyn or uh, Saint uh, Saint Black. I mean, that doesn't sound quite right, does it? Saint Black. Anyway, he's talking about uh, Black. We love you. Uh, he, he's talking about Christians. That's one of the marks of Christian that uh, you have a genuine love and commitment to other Christians. You love being with them. It's not a romantic love. It's not necessarily an emotional love, though it will affect our emotions. It's not a feeling. No, it's a deep sense of family. Now, some of us, some of us, let me tell you, you don't know this. Some of us are weird. Some of us are wacky. Some of us are off the wall, but we're family. And there's this deep commitment to the family. Now, during this COVID, we all long for social contact. We all long for human contact. Uh, we long to be with, with, uh, with other people. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. It's much deeper. It's a deep longing, a deep love for God's people. Being together one day, uh, who knows when, we'll be together meeting Sunday morning together. And we long for that, where we sing together and praise God together, where we confess our sins together, when we, when we share with each other, when we hear the word of God. That's the mark of a Christian. You want to be with God's people because they are your family, your blood family. And that blood is deeper and richer than your genetic blood because it's the blood of Christ. That's your family. On... Um, Thursday morning for me here on on Tuesday evening uh, I take one of the explore groups uh, we on our last module and uh, we've been together for two and a half years and we meet uh, Tuesday nights on zoom and it's one of the highlights of my week meeting with these brothers and sisters uh, and what a what a joy there's no there's no dirty jokes there's no slandering there's no backbiting we tease each other we laugh we study God's word we pray together and your heart is just lifted Wednesday nights I meet with another group which has sort of grown uh, Joel and Calvin and Lance and Seasway and Trifosa and uh, Jason and Francis and uh, we meet together like we did last night and uh, what an absolute joy it's almost a taste of heaven, being with God's people, reading God's word, laughing, praying, learning. A true Christian loves that. So if you don't love that, perhaps you're not a Christian and you need to turn to Christ. Third mark, third mark, which is really the cause of these two first fruits, is a hope for heaven, verse 5a. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So our faith in Christ and our love for the saints is rooted in our hope of heaven. Now, in the English language, the word hope is not strong enough. There's an element of uncertainty. So I hope that Pirates will win the league next year. I hope that Newcastle will win the PSL next year. There's some element of uncertainty in that. That's the English word. The Greek word is much stronger. It's much more certainty, much more assurance. 
Though heaven for Christians is future, it is definite, it's assured, it's a done deal. And we know that because of the resurrection of Christ. Christ was physically, bodily, historically raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven and there he is preparing a place for us. And just as the resurrection is real, so heaven is real. Isn't it wonderful to be a Christian? The best is yet to come. I mean, isn't that wonderful? If you're not a Christian, this is it. I mean, this is it. All you have to look forward to is getting older. And that's not for sissies. How sad. How miserable. For a Christian, the best is yet to come. My good friend Chippy Brand often reminds me of of a wonderful quote from J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer was a great teacher, theologian. He's just died about a week ago. He was 93 years old. In fact, we've had the death of two great Christian leaders in the last uh, couple of months. The the other was was our Indian brother, Ravi Zacharias, a great evangelist. And uh, he's got a lot of stuff on uh, on Google, uh, um, defending the Christian faith. Just wonderful. And both have gone to be with the Lord. But Chippy reminds me of that great quote of J.I. Packer from his book, Knowing God, which you must get. Um, let me quote. He said, do I, as a Christian, understand myself? Do I know my own real identity, my own real destiny? And then he says, say this over and over again. Say it first thing in the morning. Say it last thing in the night. Say it when, 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 whenever your mind is free. I am a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My savior is my brother. Every Christian is my brother too. Say that over and over again. I mean, isn't it wonderful? Heaven is my home. And every day is one day nearer. That's the, that's the longing. That's the joy uh, for every Christian. One day I'll be home. One day I'll be out of here. Now for, now for almost all of you listening, I am first in line because of my age. I'm first in line, guys. And there's no queue jumping. All right? No queue jumping. Heaven is my home, and every day is one day nearer. Imagine right now, J.I. Packer and our Indian brother Ravi are looking into the face of Jesus. Jesus, the lily of the valley, the fairest of 10,000, the bright and morning star. He's, they, they are looking into his face. They are, they are, he's teaching them. I mean, that's our great hope, our great joy. Just one comment before we move on. Paul is making a very important point here when he talks about our hope laid up for in, us in heaven. When you become a Christian, you do not receive all the blessings of salvation now. You're only tasting it. You're only getting the first installment, the first of a million installments. You're only getting the first installment here on earth. The fullness is in heaven. You see, I need you to do what, what Paul is doing and protect you from wrong teaching, from false teaching, from disillusionment. If I was to tell you that you would receive perfect happiness now, perfect success now, perfect health now, perfect salvation now, 
Well, my dear friends, there would be no reason for Christian hope, would there? No, Paul and the New Testament and the Old Testament repeatedly tell us that we are men and women of faith. We are men, men and women of hope because we've only received the first installment here. And so we hope with certainty, with assurance that one day we will have the fullness and we will join our brothers Jay and Robbie uh, in the presence of the Lord. So there are three marks of a true Christian. You are confident in your salvation because of what Christ has done for you. You rejoice in your relationship with other Christians and you long for heaven. Home. Heaven is my home and every day is one day nearer. There's no pain there. There's no suffering there. There's no tears there because we'll be with the Lord Jesus Christ, not by faith, but face to face. All right, three marks. He thanks God that they are real Christians, that, uh, that they are three marks of a real Christian. And if those marks are true of you, then you're a real Christian. Second principle, he thanks God that they've heard the real gospel. Pick it up, verse 5. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So you'll remember the context here that the false teachers in the church at Colossae were casting doubts on the completeness of the gospel that they had received from Epaphras. They're saying you guys only got half the truth. I mean, Epaphras is a good guy, but he didn't give you the whole deal. You were shortchanged. Uh, there's more to the gospel than what he taught you. That's the kind of thing they were saying. So Paul writes to reassure them that, that they did, in fact, receive the true gospel, the full gospel. So what Paul does here in this section, he gives us a remarkable description of the full gospel, of the apostolic teaching of the gospel. So let's quickly have a look at those four marks uh, of, of the real gospel. The first mark is it's a word, verse 5. Um, notice there, the second part of verse 5, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. So think about this. The gospel does not come to us primarily through experiences. It may affect our experiences, but the primary aspect of it is not experience. It's not vibrations. It's not incense. It's not perfumed candles. No, it comes to us in words. Some years ago, there was a movement called power evangelism. And the argument was that people were not coming to Christ because there was a missing ingredient and that missing, missing ingredient was signs and wonders. And if you want people to believe the gospel, they need to see signs and wonders. Now, of course, God can do miracles. He is God. I'm not knocking that. But what Paul is saying is that evangelism is about sharing the gospel in words. The key is not signs and wonders. So notice the repeated emphasis here on words, on understanding, on thinking. Notice, uh, end of verse 6, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of truth. 
Notice verse 7, just as you learnt it from Epaphras, carries on there in verse 9. Notice that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You notice the emphasis on understanding, on wisdom, on truth, on knowledge, on words. In Romans chapter 1 verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. So question, what is the power of God for salvation? Well, it's not signs and wonders. It's not buildings. It's not programs. It's not Christian entertainment. No, it's the gospel. The gospel you receive from Epaphras in words. You may remember St. Francis is reputed to have said, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Now, it sounds very nice, and what he was probably saying is that the gospel needs to be seen in your life, and we would agree with that. But that statement in and of itself is dead wrong. Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. No, the gospel is words. The gospel is words about Jesus, about us, about the cross. The second thing we notice about the gospel is that it, that it is truth. So notice verse 5 again. End of verse 5. Of this you have heard before me in the word of truth. Verse 6, right at the end. And understood the grace of God in truth. So Paul is telling us that the Christian gospel is truth with a capital T. So we use the phrase, sometimes it's used in a court of law, the truth, um, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Well, that's exactly what the gospel is. You can't add to it, you can't subtract from it without diminishing its integrity. So our secular, godless, relativistic, postmodern culture hates Christianity because of its truth claims, because of its exclusive claims. And that's why precisely some, some of our colleagues, friends, family actually hate us because of the exclusive claims of Christ. But my dear friends, if the claims of Christ are not absolute, are not exclusive, if they're not truth with a capital T, they're nothing. They're nothing. C.S. Lewis said, and I'll paraphrase, uh, he said, Christianity is either totally right or totally wrong. It cannot be moderately right. There's no such thing. So what that means for us here with evangelism at the church, one-to-one, at Christianity Explored, which is happening at the moment, thanks to Michelle and Tian and their team doing a wonderful job there sharing the gospel. It's not primarily about a mystical experience. It's not, it's not technique. It's not, it's not emotional blackmail or manipulation. No, the speaker, the evangelist, is to announce the truth. The hearer needs to hear it and understand it and obey it. And you can be five years old to hear it and understand it and obey it. Now, that does not mean that the gospel doesn't affect our emotions or our heart. No, it's head and heart. But we can't aim at the heart at the expense of the head. No, you received you received the true gospel. It came to you in words. That's what the gospel is. And it came to you in truth. Third thing about the gospel, notice verse 6, is 
It is universal in its scope. The gospel you received was not a distorted one or truncated one. No, it's the same gospel that God has spread all over the world, verse 6, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. So you didn't uh, receive a watered-down gospel, a truncated gospel. You received the real deal, the same gospel that's been spreading and bearing fruit all over the world. One of my great privileges in these last couple of years has been to to visit our brothers and sisters and churches in Mozambique and Zimbabwe and the DRC and Rwanda. And um, you know what is interesting? Everywhere you go, you will find Coke. And uh, everywhere. And uh, you won't find Diet Coke, but you'll find Coke. And uh, it's always the same. So imagine someone in in uh, deep uh, DRC, the Congo, uh, saying to me, Martin, is this Coke the real thing? I mean, haven't they watered it down for us Africans or Congolese? Um, and I'll say, no, no, no. Anywhere you go, this Coke, the taste you get is exactly the same everywhere. It's the real deal. It's the real thing. Well, that's the gospel. The gospel you receive, Colossians, is not a truncated gospel. They didn't miss out something. They didn't water it down. No, you got the real thing. Lastly, notice the gospel is a gospel of grace. Notice there, where are we? Where do we find the word grace? I've lost my place. End of verse 6. The day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Now, grace is God's unmerited favor. Grace and faith, so we looked at faith earlier on, are uh, very similar. Salvation, they always go together. Salvation, you don't work for your salvation. It comes to you by faith. You don't earn your salvation. No, it's a gift. It's grace. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. So that's a helpful little way to remember what grace is, God's riches at Christ's expense. Someone brilliantly said, are you too bad to receive grace? How could you be too bad to receive what is for the bad? I mean, isn't that, isn't that wonderful? You can never say I'm too sinful. I'm too horrible. I'm too broken. I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. You can't say that, my dear friend. Are you too bad to receive grace? How could you be too bad to receive what is for the bad? That's grace. That's the gospel of grace. Lastly, will you notice our time is gone. He thanks God that they are real Christians. He thanks God that they've received the real gospel, the real deal, the real thing. And now he asks God for their growth. Verse 9, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So he prays for two things, that they would grow in two things in particular. 
Verse 9, he prays that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. What does that all mean? He's praying that they may grow, that they may grow in their knowledge, in their spiritual wisdom, in their understanding. The same gospel that brought you to faith in Christ is the same gospel that will grow you in Christ. It's not a different gospel. You don't need an extra gospel. You don't need a top up. No, the same gospel that brought you to faith in Christ is the very same gospel that will grow you in Christ. Spiritual wisdom and understanding, what is that? Well, it's not just knowledge. No, it's knowledge applied. Remember Solomon in the Old Testament. God granted him one prayer. And his prayer wasn't for money or success or power. His prayer was for wisdom and knowledge that I may govern this great people of yours. We need wisdom. So Solomon prays for wisdom and knowledge. And so we pray that God will increase our wisdom and knowledge, not with a new gospel, not with an extra gospel. The same gospel will grow us. What is wisdom? Well, life is complex. If you think something is simple, well, you don't understand it. Nothing is simple. That's why we need wisdom. Most of our decisions and choices we have to make every day, small ones, big ones, are not right and wrong or black and white. It's not so simple. It's normally choices between varying shades of gray. And that's why we need to ask God, Lord, give me wisdom. Help me to grow in my understanding of yourself, of your word, of your purposes, so that when I make decisions, they are wise decisions that will prosper the gospel and the kingdom. And secondly, he prays that they may grow, verse 10, and live a life worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit. So we pray for that. We pray that the same gospel that has changed us and revolutionized our lives, that our lives may be different, that we may live lives that are worthy of the Lord, that it may bear fruit in your marriage, in your parenting, in your in your place of work, amongst your friends, your colleagues. Lord, will you, will you give me wisdom as I make decisions tomorrow, this week? Will you give me knowledge, understanding, and will you help me to bear fruit, that my life, my love, my words may bear fruit, that there would be, a, that there would be fruit from my life? Um, well, there we go. I think we need to stop there. Let's pray. And I'm going to actually pray from verse 11 and 12 and 13. And then we're going to come to the Lord's table. So after the prayer, you may want to go and fetch uh, some grape juice or any juice or water. And you may want to fetch uh, some bread or a biscuit. And uh, then we're going to remember in particular what Christ has done for us uh, at the Lord's table. But let me pray. Father, as we've been talking about being real Christians and having discovered and receiving the real gospel, we pray, Lord, that you will strengthen us with all power so that we may hold to that gospel with all endurance and patience. And Lord, help us to be thankful, whatever our circumstances, that you have qualified us to share in heaven the inheritance of the saints. 
And thank you, Lord, that you have delivered us. Oh, what a, what a wonderful thing. The Lord has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom we have salvation. Oh, Father, thank you so much for your grace, for your mercy, for your word, for your spirit. Pray that you will work these things in us, that you will change us. And Father, help us to examine ourselves, that today that we may do self-examination, that we have the Bible, this passage in front of us, and we examine our hearts to see where we fall short. And will you cleanse us and wash us and fill us with your spirit again that we may serve you and bear fruit um, and live lives that are worthy of the gospel. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.